Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Film Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large out in Los Angeles. And and the last time we spoke, we were in the thick of it with the Toronto International Film Festival. We survived. We're going into the fall season, having made it through the biggest festival of the year. And uh, there's Which some people complained is too big. Do you agree with that? You know, it's funny because this was my 10th time going and I've always sort of taken for granted that it's this massive gathering. And the more you keep coming back, the more you start to question, do you really need so many movies all at once? And I think it's a very challenging thing. I've heard PR people complain. I've heard, you know, marketing people. What is the the real downside? I mean, they're basically programming for their audience. That's their first priority. the, the reality is there are many different kinds of audiences. Exactly. That's, that's really what it comes down to is there are people who want to go see these big fall season movies and then there are other people who want to see obscure foreign language titles that are otherwise never going to screen. And one of the so, things that they were doing that was really cool was that they were they were they were programming African movies for 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 people and they were programming a lot of and they've done this their whole you know I remember they introduced Hong Kong cinema back in the day, you know, and introduced oh yeah, and people to have, John uh, Woo and they're doing the same and, thing now. And you have the Midnight Madness section, which is an entirely separate festival in many kinds of ways with a different audience, a different sensibility. And that's the reality of the market is that it's so fragmented that it makes more sense to have something on this scale. Now, having said that, it's really hard as any member of the industry to dig through the priorities of a festival like this. And yeah, but we're it does only going to take a slice, each of us. I, Every single person who goes, is it, some people care about the impossible. docs, some people yeah. care about the foreign films, some people it's are true. reviewing new movies like you, some people are looking at Oscars like me. It's a different slice for everyone. I think that the, the challenge is that it's, it's so big that it's hard for people to figure out exactly what it is as a whole and how to quantify its value. And maybe there are ways they could improve that. I mean, the platform section, which they added two years ago, is the only competition section in the festival. That's where Jackie screened, and Jackie screened really well. I mean, they, there are good movies that are presented in certain ways. I think maybe if they added more sections that people could understand a little bit more, it could help other audiences take advantage of those sections if they had more competition sections, for example. But personally, these I are think all Sundance kind of- is the most difficult festival to navigate, and Toronto is very pleasant and well run. And I just take my picks. You know, I'm not expect. I don't even. It's so big that I don't even begin to expect that I'm going to cover. You know, any any major number of films. And ultimately, what it comes down to is this. I mean love it or hate it, this is a festival with a tremendous amount of influence, and that certainly was no exception this year. The audience prize, which is given out at the end of every year, often ends up being a part of the awards conversation because the movie that wins ends up playing a role in the awards conversation, and that certainly seems to be the case this year with La La Land taking home the audience prize. I'm going to predict here and now that La La Land is facing not necessarily 100% smooth sailing. It's going to do very well. It's going to be a big Oscar contender. It's going to have all the, if you think about it, if you work from the back forward, you can, you can see all the categories that will be rewarded. You know, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's entertaining. It's got, you know, a strong musical element, all this stuff, but it isn't necessarily, it's playing better younger than it is older. And I'm curious to see, I'm already getting that thing coming back in LA from subsequent screenings where people have gone to see it and it's been overhyped. And that is a dangerous thing. 
because it is what it, what it is. I mean, you kind of get what you, what you pay for on this one. It's an old school musical with some familiar faces and a little bit of extra spice. I mean, I'm not totally crazy about the movie. I don't hate on it, but it, it seems to me like there's not a lot else out there that could spoil the odds, don't you think? I mean, Manchester by the Sea. A lot of things still to come, which we're going to talk about. I actually think Manchester by the Sea is going to do better than La La Land with the Oscar voters. It's I actually believe that. That's not, but it's not a traditional crowd pleaser the way that La La Land is, and it's a not celebrating. A traditional crowd pleaser doesn't necessarily win Best Picture. Well, if we look at the last few years, it's been a, it's been a very particular kind of trajectory, right? Spotlight was a, Twelve a very Twelve Years a Slave effect. is not necessarily a crowd pleaser. <laughs> that, that's an interesting point. Neither, love, neither, I, and neither, neither, neither was Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker. It's been yeah. a couple of years, in any case. Since the artist the, was a crowd yeah. pleaser about show business. Birdman was a sh crowd pleaser, a, a challenging one about Although, show business. Uh, it, I mean, to, to go back to your counterexamples, though, I mean, those are movies that are also very heavy on the issues. Sure. Right? Manchester is not an issue movie. It's a character study, essentially. It is more guy. like something like In the Bedroom. It is more of the tearjerker drama. And, and it is so effective and so well-written and so well-directed and so well-acted and edited and everything. I just think they're going to appreciate its virtues, and everyone Isn't will. That, I mean, the things you're describing, aren't those the things that go for a movie with, uh, you know, get strong acting accolades, screenplay, those sort of things, but Best Picture... Oh, it'll be a Best be Picture well. contender. It will, and it'll be a strong one. I, I mean, I really like the movie. I can't wait to see it again in New York Film Festival. It's been, it's been something that I've been thinking about more and more it plays with tone in really interesting ways and the critics love it too it, yes the critics are going to put all of these films on their 10 best at the end of the year and 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 one of the ones i'm sort of curious about has nothing to do with the festivals but i'm gonna i'm, I'm actually i keep thinking about what how will hell or high water do you know well it's, that one's kind of crept into the conversation yes right? it's it creeping sort of in i think jeff bridges is in there and i think it could get screenplay maybe but I'm not sure if it goes farther than that. What do you think? Well, I, I, I like that movie quite a bit. I think it's a very uh, stripped-down genre picture with a lot on its mind. And in other words, it's using the genre in smart ways. And it is a but crowd But genre leader. is sort of dangerous with the yeah. Academy. They don't yeah, necessarily I mean, I, go that way. That's why we're not, think, we're not talking about The Magnificent Seven because it's sort of a sort of a genre movie. You also, know? I think I, the, I've heard many different reactions to Hell or High Water. It is not a universally beloved movie. It's a very satisfying movie. And it's a, a hit. It's, the, it's going to be the biggest, highest grossing independent film of, of the year so far. And it may be on a lot of those critics' 10 bests at the end of the year. I do think yeah. it, it, I, could, I could see it showing up on the AFI 10 best or something like that. Sure. I mean, it's, it's very accomplished, and everybody who's involved has been building towards this kind of a movie for a while. If you think about it on the level of directing and screenwriting and performances, these are all people who are really trying to make a very polished kind of sort of thriller of sorts, a Western-esque thriller, and, and it, it's very satisfying in that sense. I'm actually more curious about a movie like Sully, which, you know, it didn't do a big festival play, it just went to Telluride, but is doing amazingly well. because it was opening right away, and it's holding incredible. It's a, it's a hit, and I think, as I felt from the beginning, uh, and obviously the people at, at Telluride thought so too. I think it's going to be a big, a big player because people love 86-year-old Clint Eastwood still doing a good job. But it's also like Argo 
or, or The Martian. It's a movie that celebrates American ingenuity and, and people coming together for a good end. And it's, a, it's interesting to contrast it with something like uh, Snowden, which also played in Toronto and, and isn't going over well at the audience at all. I mean, it's, it's just not as good a movie. I mean, I, neither I of liked those it. Are, I liked I, Snowden. I think it's an interesting movie, but it's, that is not a crowd pleaser in the way that Sully is. Well, Sully, I think there's a, some really remarkable craftsmanship there. I found the the story surrounding it a little hokey in parts and, and very old fashioned, but the way in which it replays the crash incredibly well executed, and, and that's what elevates that movie for me. Whereas Snowden, I thought, just felt very heavy handed, and I wasn't totally convinced by it. It just, it, it I, I get the appeal of dramatizing the story. I just felt like it, there was a lot of hand holding going on. As Stone, as a filmmaker, tends to do to kind of drive home Snowden's message in a way that that, that really helped me back from appreciating the movie as a whole. I mean, I, I feel like Stone is such a fascinating character and his ideas are crystallized by his career as a whole. Sometimes as a director, that's lost. And, and this that's, that's my hang up with this one. And I assume what you're saying is that Academy members are going to feel similarly on some level, that this is not that kind of a movie that they oh, want. Oh, Snowden's or, not going to happen at all. But I think Sully will be, you know, Eastwood and Picture and and Tom well, Hanks and all that. A, and maybe a, maybe Aaron Eckhart gets in for that one instead of Bleed for this, you know? Well, that Eckhart thing is interesting since he has both of those movies. It kind of helps put him in, on the top of a lot of people's piles anyway. Yeah. And Bleed for this is a movie that people don't really like, but he's going through this physical transformation which can't hurt at least for people to think about his range as an actor. And he I is, think he I think really, good. I think, I think Aaron Eckhart really um, could break out with, with Bleed for this, but we shall see. So the other thing that's going on is that this is the time of year when uh, people are submitting all the different countries around the world. Last, last year, 81 submitted eligible uh, foreign language uh, entries and 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 then you get the foreign branch and all there isn't really a foreign branch what you have are a lot of people from all the different branches who become part of it v various different committees that that vote for the foreign language film and the deadline is October 3rd so quite a few of them have already submitted their films and there's some interesting stories you know sometimes they make mistakes or they allow politics to get in the way and you know Brazil did that. They allowed politics to get in the way so that something we've never heard of, Little Secret. Did you see Little Secret? Got chosen. I haven't seen it. I'm very curious about that. Because it's, it's, every year we hear about the films that are submitted from these individual countries and then all of a sudden you're wound, you wind up with this list of things and some of them have stood out on the festival circuit for a while and, and we already know about them and then other things just sort of crop up and, and you wonder where they, they came from. And uh, I've actually heard some people complain about this process because what it does is it forces the Academy to be at the mercy of these different countries. That's they true. They can't consider, say, if there were two masterpieces from Israel, both of those movies, unless those mo one of those movies was submitted for some other category. I actually approve of what Israel does, though, because at least what they do is they leave it up to their awards show. They, they, in other words, the Israeli Best Picture Ophir winner, which turned out to be Sandstorm, this, that just came up today, that just broke today, um, yeah. by Elite Zexer. Did you, did you see that? That was at Sundance. I did see it. Yes, I saw it at Sundance. It's, it's, it's very solid. Uh, Israeli filmmaker perspective on a Palestinian community and a woman who's being forced to an arranged marriage and kind of rebels. But it's, it's a very small 
film. And it's and it's actually kind of fascinating that they didn't submit something like Rama Burstein's Through the Wall, which I saw at Telluride, recently picked up by Roadside. They Attack. only submit the winner of the Best Picture Exactly. But so that, but, but so I, that's what they do. At least that makes sense to me. If every country had figured out a way to have their national awards be within the Oscar season, yeah. maybe that would be the way to do it. But they all have different committees and different reasons why they pick things. And, and in Brazil, they didn't pick Aquarius and they put Which some... Is BS. You know, it's Sonia it was Braga. all about Dilma Rousseff and the impeached, yeah. you know, the impeached Ridiculous. president in politics, yeah. which is horrible. And Russia did it again. Konchalovsky gets he's the head of the Russian film, you know, unit there. He's like friends with Putin. And it's yeah, almost it's like clockwork that he's going to get nominated if he has a movie. And sure enough, he has been. Yeah, that's, it's it's absurd the way that that winds up happening. I mean, I can get Belgium passing over the Dardenne brothers, but Russia passing over different kinds of things over the years has been... I mean, there was that one victory when Leviathan was nominated, Correct. but that movie was so widely acclaimed, it was like... They, they couldn't, couldn't not, not do it. They had, they, they, it was too publicized. Right. And and he was, made, he, was, he, was, he was like their top filmmaker, and he would have, like, left the country. <laughs> he said that to me. You know, he, he was ready to, to, to split. So. Succeed. <laughs> if they wanted, if they, but you know, some of the front runners in this, in this universe would be maybe Venezuela's From Afar or Chevalier, which you and I both loved from I mean, Greece. it would be great to see Chevalier get nominated. It's a strong woman filmmaker whose, whose profile is on the rise. It's, it's got topicality to it. It's funny. It's um, great. Really I hope everybody sees it. That's what's good about it. I mean, if you can get some some attention paid to these movies. They'll, they, you know, Julieta from Almodovar did get submitted. Neruda from Pablo Lorraine did get submitted. The, the, these are the, these are the Cannes films. So the salesman, you know, from Oscar Farhadi did, you know, which won best actor in Cannes and Tony Erdman, which got ignored at Cannes. Uh, from Germany, so those are the sort of the high-profile ones. Well, ultimately, that I mean, irrespective of what's on this list, you're, you're gonna—it's gonna come down to just a couple of things getting nominated and a couple of campaigns. And so, when you really look at this list, I mean, Tony Erdman is obviously a front runner. So oh yeah, it's a Sony Pictures Classics release, and they're gonna campaign the hell out of it. They're showing it all over the place. They're they're already showing it to lots of press in the U.S. and, and just developing a lot of strong word of mouth. Um, I'm actually. I, 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 I like hope that that's a hit. Part. I hope people go to see it because it's so much fun. I think word of mouth is just going to really carry it. I agree. It's a very long movie, and and it's grown on me. I'm actually looking forward to seeing it again because it's a very textured experience. But then there's also stuff like Iran submission under the shadow, which I was, I, I was very. It's pleasant not under. It's not Iran. It's it has. It's in Farsi, but it's been it's been submitted by the UK by England. That's interesting. So See, it's a, this, this that's a case where you thought it was, it's like Mustang. Yeah. Remember Mustang was, was submitted by France, not Turkey. Well, that, that's fascinating. I mean, it's worth looking at that for a second because this is a movie that's it's not just in Farsi. It's set in Iran. I mean, it's set during it's the just, Iran. It happens to be produced by the UK and, and therefore they're claiming it as their own. And it doesn't have to be in English. Well, it, it can't be in English to be a foreign language. That's correct. Anyway, so. Therefore, you know, a lot of people just raise their eyebrows. You know, how could this be? But, you know, Ireland submitted Patty Brethnach's Viva, which was shot in Spanish in, in Cuba. So it has been done. Well, I, I mean, I'd love to see that movie get some play. I mean, it's, 
it's a very heavy genre movie. It's like the Babadook or something about a haunted building, but it's a really strong debut with a really strong female-centric performance. I mean, that versus Tony Erdman, I mean, yeah, I'd watch that race, you know? So there's, uh, I mean, there's stuff like Sierra Nevada from Romania, which you know is probably not going to be. It's just too, too, much, too difficult for a lot of people. It just doesn't seem like it's a big player. Park Chan Wook's The Handmaiden, on the other hand, is a real wacky, fun movie. Which didn't so. get submitted, so they went with The Age of Shadows, which, which um, I, I, that's the World War II movie. Which not a lot of people seem to like. So that was You the, haven't seen it, though, right? No, no. Because I do like Kim Ji-Woon. I think he's yeah. a great filmmaker. But but this this movie is said to be a very very different kind of change of pace for him. It's not. You it's not shouldn't a, talk about something you haven't seen until you've seen it. You might love it. Well, you never know. I mean, I guess the, the, the thing that I found surprising is when I heard what this movie is about, and then having seen The Handmaid, and I was like, really, Korea? I mean, it's an interesting divide, in a sense. But... Again, it's a, it's a weird. No, process. I like Kim Ji Won. I want to check it out for myself and see see how it is. And and yeah, I, uh, I have seen the Denmark. Uh, World oh War yeah, II. Land of Mine. How is yeah. that? It's it's solid. I mean, it's it's very uh, stripped down. Uh, a kind of sentimental story about a bunch of soldiers who are tasked basically after the war with cleaning up mines and. There's, it's it's pretty straightforward, but it's well acted. Um, it's not the kind of movie that I think everyone's going to do somersaults over. But no, it's I'm going to catch up with these. They're starting to screen them, of course, all over yeah. town. It's, it's interesting how this race, in some ways, seems to pick up steam much faster than the uh, the bigger categories. I mean, there's just already a lot of movies here that we're, we're talking about, whereas there's a lot of other stuff that we don't know about in terms of how the next few months are going to play out. Yeah. Well, the New York Film Festival is coming up, and, and I have seen the opening night movie, which is the 13th, which is Ava DuVernay's documentary, which is, um, it was described very much as being about our prison system, as being uh, a, a form of, of, of an extension of slavery. And, and she makes an argument, a very strong argument for that. And one of the most interesting things in it is about birth of a nation. It's about about the ways that that changed. I mean, I'm very aware of its the position in film versus, history. Uh, yeah, the original, the yeah. How how you know with Ku Klux Klan and 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 you know black people who were played by white people in blackface, uh, who were villains, and the way that that had an impact on on our culture. And she interviews a lot of really brainy academics, um, historians uh, about, about this, including Angela Davis. I was very impressed that she got Angela Davis to talk to her. Really? Come on, Ava DuVernay should be able to get anybody on I camera. guess she can. She is, I mean, this, this woman is, is probably one of the most prominent people in the, in the film industry period at this point. I mean, it's the kind of influence that she has. And it's extraordinary that this documentary is opening New York Film Festival. First time they've opened with a doc. Done that. So I'm looking forward to seeing that one. But it's maybe not one of the bigger kind of unknown variables in that sense relative to the other. Well, it's opening really quickly after yes. that on, on Netflix. So Yeah. But then you have something like the Ang Lee film, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which is there's a real curiosity around. This Mainly because of the of the use of the fast frame rate, which I'm curious to see too. And he's never one to be dismissed. He always comes up with something exactly. good. I mean, when Life of Pi came to New York Film Festival, people were really unsure about that one. Is it going to be you know super sappy and oversaturated with special effects or something like that, and it totally won people over? So in this case. 
very few people have seen the movie. It sounds like it's really down to the last minute in terms of it being finished. I'd heard that Ken Jones, the head programmer, had to see it in some you know private screening room and, and just decided it was really great. So you know those kinds of really limited reactions there it, it give you not much to go on in that sense. And yeah, so, no, I'm curious. Yeah. I'm very curious, and I'm curious to see 20th Century Women from Mike Mills with um, uh, Annette Benning, and and I'm also curious to see that that Lost City of Z. I mean, most of the other films. Um, I mean, you you you. I'm sure there are lots of new ones, but. Many of the other ones are, are ones we've seen already from from yeah, Japan or other festivals. And Lost City of Z is an Amazon Studios is putting that out in 2017, so that's not something that is going to really change anything this fall. It's no, hardly. Mark there. Of course, there's the Scorsese movie, which we continue to anticipate. Presumably, he will finish it for its December release. But, right, uh, and and there's the Brad, poor Brad Pitt has a movie coming out with Marion Cotillard, with whom he did not have an affair. <laughs> she you told don't us. Don't have to feel that bad for the guy. People I don't. feel bad for him. Yeah, I do. His marriage just broke up. He's being his wife is trying to get him <laughs> not to have custody of their six children. I could see I could see him being a little upset right now. Yeah, I hate to linger on a story like this, but then you realize that this is a story that actually everybody notices and has a reaction to. And there is something worth scrutinizing about that. I just started teaching the latest edition of my NYU film criticism class. The other night I, I brought this up and I, and I said, why do people think this is everywhere? You know, why did Richard Brody in The New Yorker write an essay about Brangelina? Because that image of this, this power couple told, told a story. I mean, they essentially told They us created that narrative, and that's the thing that's so interesting about Hollywood is how we have, the, we still have this powerful image of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton as the sort of equivalent, in a way, power couple from that period, except that they were bad. They were drinking and brawling and breaking up and getting back together, and, and you know, they, they, they were almost sort of the... The, the we loved how bad they were, you know, and and Br Brad and Angie were good, you know, they were do-gooders, and they seemed very golden and very very ideal, very perfect parents. Very. You got to remember, though. I mean, we live in a very different day and age. If, if you had a couple doing all that kind of bad stuff now, it would be so thoroughly documented on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. It was documented then, you know. Believe me, uh, it, it, you know they were surrounded by by pictures and, and coverage, but it, it's not like the internet. And, not like Twitter. And, no. So, so basically, the, the, the reason everybody's so upset is, is because we invested in them. We did. We invested in that image. And, you know, Angelina writing about, you know, her, her breast cancer and, and, you know, everything. You know, not, not her breast cancer, her mastectomies to get rid of any possibility of getting breast cancer because of her genetic makeup and so forth and and you know so all right brad has a movie it's coming up uh with marion cotillard and it's right. called allied and you know that's one of the ones we haven't seen yet and we haven't seen warren Beatty's rules don't apply which is going to be the opening night at the uh afi fest so a lot right. of that stuff Although is going on for a little while, I mean, with that one, it's sort of, it's hard to tell if that's really going to shake things up. And there's also the question mark of some of the other focus titles, like, okay, so we saw the new Tom Ford movie, Nocturnal Animals. Is that going to 
continue to have a strong life, or is it really going to divide people? Because it's just people are really not talking about that. Like it's like it's a it's a a a strong Oscar contender. I think it helps Amy Adams with with her arrival, uh, you know, profile. It it it's it's a strong. You know, uh, she's good in it. The actors are good in it, but but uh, I, I I'm I'm not feeling the the love there. And Arrival, you, you we still think is just Amy Adams and, and little else. Is that right? I don't know. No, people like that movie. I I, I I have to see how it gets reviewed. I have to see how it plays at the box office. I mean, if it goes well, it's a actually I think there's a lot that could go in the crafts and the special, you know, visual effects and cinematography. It's beautifully designed, production design, stuff like that could go for that. It's funny, speaking speaking of that movie, because as we're recording this podcast, I'm actually in Austin for Fantastic Fest, which is opening with Arrival right now. I think they're doing their red carpet and all that kind of stuff. So, so talk about Fantastic Fest. Do you yeah. go every year? I, I've gone on and off for, for the last few years. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's the kind of thing where even if I didn't work in this industry, I'd probably go to it because it's just like a, a wacky genre festival. Run by Tim the, League, right? Tim League, and, and actually Harry Knowles co-founded it uh, over, I think, 10, 12 years ago. And, uh, but but the, what, what I like about it is that it's not a traditional festival in the sense that there's a lot of unknown variables. It's more about the scene and the kinds of sensibilities that converge around different kinds of movies. And as I said in the story I did today, what, what's really cool about it is that they show mostly foreign language films, but people flock to them. They sell out badges, and all kinds of people I are just. I think of it as a genre festival. Yeah, but they don't. They don't react to movies on the basis of whether or not they fit at the festival. So when Antichrist came to this festival, it was no longer the controversial can title. It was a genre film. Whereas you show something like Son of Saw here, and suddenly it's this really tense thriller. This year they're showing Tony Erdman because they like to show edgy comedy. <laughs> so they changed the profile of these movies. What are they a, introducing? Well, I mean, what I think they're doing is they're basically saying that there is a kind of edgier, younger audience for certain kind of movies. Maybe not a cinephile audience per se, but just an audience that, that likes movies that don't feel safe, that don't feel like they fall into traditional boundaries. By the way, one of the stories that did come out of Toronto was the purchase of Colossal by Tim League and Tom Quinn with and mysterious movie, uh, backing from China. I like the idea that those guys are mysterious Chinese buyers. The way that that story played out in the media I was I think they have hilarious. backers. I think they have mysterious <laughs> Chinese backers because they yeah. seem to have gotten the money they needed to start their distribution company, which they didn't have when they were trying to release Michael Moore's Where to Invade Next, right? Well, this is serious inside baseball here, but Colossal is closing night at Fantastic Fest. The director of that movie is a, a Spanish guy, Nacho Vigalondo. He got a serious boost from this festival when his film Time Crimes played here about a decade oh, ago. So they had an early in on this. Exactly, and it, and it sold out of this festival. It, Tim, Tom Quinn saw Time Crimes at Fantastic Fest and bought the movie. So these guys are essentially latching on to somebody they have this strong relationship yes. with as he makes this crossover movie that has a bigger star in it and Hathaway. And this is the right kind of movie, I think, for them to launch their, fe their, their new company with. Not the Michael Moore movie that they worked with last fall. Well, that they made well. a mistake there. So, but what, what kind of name are they going to come up with, though? Yeah. No, we should we should probably brainstorm them. I mean, I I heard one person suggest T and T, which sounds like oh, that's it a might good be idea. A good fit. So a, I like you heard, it. Here, folks, 
<laughs> not an exclusive. Not just a bad a brand. Mystery. So in any case, I'm, I'm just here for the weekend, seeing a bunch of movies, just sort of a prelude to the New York Film Festival, and then I'll be there. We're, we're going to have wall-to-wall coverage of all kinds of different things, including stuff that we've seen before and we'll have an opportunity to come back to and, and documentaries that have been gathering some buzz. We'll be doing our Critics Academy that we've been doing for the last five years. And so it's, it's actually a really exciting time in the sense that the, as there are fewer unknown variables, there are more opportunities just for us to talk about the movies we want to talk about. So here's to that. And um, as I this weekend, yeah, we'll have much more to dig into next week. Okay. Bye-bye, Eric.